This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward, and I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. Today, we continue our series on depression in the workplace. Depression is the number one cause of disability in the United States and the world, affecting close to 15 million workers in this country alone. But it still carries so much stigma that it can be difficult to talk about at work. With me today is a business owner who has both experienced depression herself and worked hard to create a culture that supports the mental health of her employees and her customers. Mary Allen Lindemann is the co-founder of Coffee by Design, a Maine-owned and operated coffee company with five stores and a roastery in the Portland area. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Mary Allen. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. And I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this vitally important topic for all of us. Yeah. So I know that you care about this partly because you're a really good person, but I also know that you have some personal experience mm-hmm. with it. And I want to start there. Tell me a little bit about your own relationship mm-hmm. to depression. You know, it's interesting because I would not have come to terms with my own issues with depression if I hadn't opened my business. Aha. Uh-huh. And, How did that happen? And, and it's funny because it, it, through the journey of Coffee by Design, when we first opened and in 1994, and then there was the deinstitutionalization of AMHI. And, and there, that's the Augusta Mental Health Institute. Absolutely. And, and we noticed a change in our customer base. There was a shift. And, uh, and so I really started looking at what were the issues that were coming in our coffee house? So let me just explain for a minute. So deinstitutionalization refers to a change in the law where large state mental hospitals were closed down and people who had been, had severe mental illness, who'd been living in institutions for years, mm-hmm. were discharged to the community. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there were a lot more people with very severe schizophrenia out on the street in a way that had not been the case before. So go ahead. And, and it's interesting. I appreciate the clarification because, trust me, th- none of this was on my radar when we opened the business. Um, I've learned, and one of the most important things that both I and my staff learned through trainings we've had is don't be afraid to let people you know you don't know the lingo. Use the language, what you're seeing, what you're feeling. You don't have to know that it's a, a consumer as opposed to a client or someone in your coffee house who's crazy. I know early on our our staff were afraid to use phrases like that person is crazy or the behavior seems really frightening to me and we've really encouraged them to use that but but when we first opened it really there was this change in our customer base early on and and what I really have appreciated about my business partner and the people who work with us is rather than saying we don't want that element in here we really started doing research on how can we actually continue a diverse customer base but make sure that Everyone is treated with the same respect, but it might be how we present information may have to differ a little bit. And so it really started as something that was out there coming in to the business. Yeah, so then let's actually stay with this before we come back to your story, which Mm -hmm. is, so when you say it really changed maybe how you present information, Mm -hmm. can you give me an example of what you mean? Sure, something as simple as if someone's behavior was disruptive. And you would, of course, assume they know their behavior is disruptive, but maybe they don't. Or if it's someone who's been institutionalized their whole life and suddenly they're mainstream without a lot of support, how do you give them feedback in a way that's non-threatening? How do you let someone know, you know, we love having you here, but the tone of your voice or the fact that you come in and you are 
flailing about or, you know, literally it was just we started to realize we needed to give feedback to people because they honestly, in many cases, were not aware that the behavior was disruptive. We started learning what could we do to calm someone down so it wouldn't get to that place. What do you do? Some of it was as simple as, you know, if someone's sitting at a table and the behavior is disruptive and you're standing over them and giving them information the behavior is scary or frightening, that's really threatening that you're standing over them. them. Mm -hmm. So we learned to sit down next to them. If, as long as whoever felt safe. Also letting staff know it's okay. If this is not comfortable, you make sure there's a coworker who might be comfortable. Um, so really getting close to people and on the same level so that they understand it's non-threatening. Some customers actually writing down what the issues with the behavior are. Um, we used to have a list of everyone's case managers. So if we really oh, needed really? guidance or assistance, that obviously the case manager could not disclose that it was a client of theirs, but we could call and say, if by chance... If by chance your client is here, what should I do? (laughs) What should I do? Or you should know that we suspect that Steve is not on his meds today. Just heads up. The behavior seems different than what we're used to or more extreme than what we're used to. Is it fair to say that you had real regulars who you started to get to know at that level? Absolutely. No, definitely regulars. And still to this day, it's amazing to me when I see some of the regulars. And also there's a trust now that... If I see that someone's behavior, I just I know them well enough that I can pull them aside and say, it just seems like you're going through a hard time. You know when you're behaving like this, the frantic environment of the coffee house might not be the best environment for you right now. So it's really caring. That's a really caring way to say this is... Well, first of all, letting them know that the behavior's off. You may not be aware, but we're noticing a, a shift in the behavior. and And also, our staff have been trained... Before you ask someone to leave, always offering help. Can I call someone for you? Is there someone whom you might want us to contact so that they know? And and it's funny because we've not done the formal trainings in years. The, the person who we used to work with at DHHS has since retired, and we haven't found anyone else who's as magical as she was. But it's interesting. I've, I have had customer feedback. They'll call me or email me and say, I saw this incident go on, and I need to let you know. Your staff treated the person with respect. They, if it's a situation where they're having to ask someone to leave, they're very discreet in the ask. It's they're not publicly humiliated. That is the key. So I can imagine if I was you, a store owner, I'm trying to make money, I'm trying to succeed, mm-hmm. and I'm having a, a number of people with severe mental illness who are disruptive mm-hmm. in my coffee shop. I'm, I can imagine feeling some pressure to actually say, get out. My other customers are going to be alienated from this. People are not going to want to come here. Be nervous about that and and not make the choices Mm -hmm. you did to really educate yourself and your staff Mm -hmm. to make everyone feel welcome. How did you not Mm -hmm. decide that? It's a challenge every day to make sure there's a balance because we want the diversity of it. It really began as we're human beings. It really started from that place of we all deserve to be here. And then Oh, we then had a staff member who uh, made a, you know, it was a bad decision in taking ecstasy. And so there was a major shift in her behavior um, that we actually had to get her some pretty serious, we had to intervene. And it was a really frightening experience for all of us because I'd never had to approach someone who worked with us whose behavior had shifted so dramatically and just trust my gut that something was really wrong. 
we did end up having to get her to main med. And actually, I'm not her parent. I have no legal rights over this person and had to insist that we would wait until someone would see her. And she ended up uh, in, in Spring Harbor for mm-hmm. a significant period of time. And, and now I have to say it's remarkable. She worked very hard to get back and now has an amazing career. But the impact it had on the rest of the staff. and What impact was that? And, and that was the first time we actually we brought counselors in because I could tell that they were shaken, that here, and the guilt many of them had. She had actually called a number of them because she hadn't slept for a week and just wanted to have a cup of coffee, wanted to just go out, and everyone had said no. They were busy. And so the guilt and people that could we have helped her, could we have stepped in earlier, um, the anger. I had many staff, you institutionalized her. How dare you? And I couldn't figure out where the anger was coming from, and so... We brought counselors in, and anyone who wanted to come, there was no pressure, but anyone who wanted to come and just explore what had happened. And what came out was we all feel on edge. We all are under pressure. Um, We all have student loans that we're freaking out about. We all have life is so complex now, and so here were all of these 20-somethings that felt fear, anger, all of these emotions because it happened to be her, but it could be any one of us. And so it really opened up the conversation that, again, it, it can be any of us. And so how do we destigmatize that? And I hate even, I don't like talking about mental illness. To me, it has to do with mental health. All of us need to be talking about mental health because there are times in all of our lives that we experience challenges. And how do we look at getting help as not that you're mentally ill, but you're healthy and getting Right, because asking for help is a sign of health. Absolutely. Counter to how many of us were raised to think about that. It is counter. And even, you know, again, the thing that was interesting to me is it just showed um, as a community, we have to help each other. We have to get rid of all the, the fear and stigmas and the idea of what does someone who's mentally ill look like or who are they. And it just, to me, it just was eye-opening that it had always been they, the people outside coming in, and now it really became one of us. And then it did come full circle within my own family. Tell me about that. Which, uh, which I, I have a sister who uh, had been misdiagnosed for years and had a really high-powered career. And when some things in her personal life shifted, we went through um, um, many years and continue to be in the journey through the, the Spring Harbor system. And so really having Spring to Harbor address... Spring Harbor is a local psychiatric hospital here in Portland. It is. And so it, it, it really was having to really view a family member that you can be brilliant and you can be very accomplished, but at the same time underlying there was a mental illness that had not been addressed until it really, she crashed and burned. And we had to really step in and take care of it at the same time I had a my mother was dying. So there was there was a, so much going on, but it really gave me the opportunity to realize that we have to advocate for one another, and we have to have faith that just because someone is going through an extremely rough time, they can turn their life around. And again, if I hadn't had all of these other steps in the business leading it up to the point, I might not have believed that it can turn around. I learned with a family member I wanted to be there for my sister, but I needed to ask for help myself 
and having someone else actually be that first call when there was an emergency situation. I, I want to spend a little more time here because I think it really is difficult to love someone who has severe depression. Mm -hmm. And when you say that, the personal toll on, on me, what is the personal toll of loving someone mm -hmm. who's so severely depressed there in and out of the hospital? I think, you know, it's first of all, it's terrifying. I mean, suicide is very real and it's very frightening. And, and realizing you can't fix them. And again, through it, it's when I started realizing my own depression, something that had been sort of underlying for years. And so I have to say part of it was scary to me and having to acknowledge that I had been experiencing depression for years but had never really acknowledged it. I was within my family. I was My nickname was Mary Mary because I was always meant to be happy. And so I was the, uh, the caregiver, the I can fix it, I can take care of you. And so... It was really having to look not only at someone I love dearly and having to say, no, I can't be there for you all the time, but then having to look within myself and saying, I need to take care of myself and realizing that that's not a bad thing. The incredible guilt we all feel about, I can't take care of you because I need to take care of myself. And it's taken me, it took me some time to realize I can take better care of others if I myself am healthy. And uh, I went to a really powerful workshop in the first exercise they had us all do. It was a room of 30 women, and we just had walked in and met, and we had to visualize a community where there was you know, no illness, no war, just the, the perfect place, and all of a sudden the plague breaks out. And each of us has been given two vials of the cure. And we had to go around the room one by one and look at people we just met and decide who am I going to save. Oh, my gosh. And that to the people you weren't going to save, you just had to say, look at them in the face and say, I have no cure for you. And so we go around the room, and we're weeping. I mean, you have to make a judgment call very quickly. Who will you save? And and the facilitator asked, did anyone hold on to a vial for herself? And one woman out of 30 raised her hand, and you could tell she was so shy and guilty that she had saved one for her to save herself. And as the facilitator said, did it ever occur to everyone here if each of you had held onto one vial, the whole community would have been saved? Again, what is it that we don't realize in taking care of ourselves? We can take care of the whole community better. Now, I'm, this was a group of 30 women, mm -hmm. is that right? So that's so much part of gender socialization, I think, is that we look after other people first. You know, obviously my experience is as a woman, and I think there's a lot of guilt associated with taking care of yourself. And it's been my personal journey with depression and that I am healthier now because I take better care of myself. And I need to not look at when other people perceive that as selfish. So, another, so let me just see if I can say this back to you. So what I'm hearing you say is that, in a way, sort of the gift of depression, as it were, although depression is a, an experience of tremendous suffering. But it sounds like it taught you that you have to take care of yourself and that mm -hmm. that was really a mm -hmm. gift that had all this other ripple effect. It did. And also the idea of always being happy. You yes. know, and it was, and it was, you know, I, I loved that um, my dad, who's been met, gone for many, many years, I love that he perceived me as this happy, joyful child. And, and it was never his intention that that meant that I couldn't have other emotions. But but that was the message that I took out of it. This reminds me of the movie Inside Out. Did you see it? I, you know, it's funny. It's a great resource. 
Yeah, so that's a movie about a little girl who's been trained all her life to be only happy. And it's the story of her reclaiming these kind of very disowned parts of herself, like anger or sadness or a jealousy or fear that she really had to squelch. So you're you're living it. I'm living it. And actually, it's funny, that was a great movie for both children and adults. It really opened up great conversation again for my preteen that... And she many times will say to me, Mom, I'm feeling, and remember, we saw that movie. Yeah. So I think that, again, we all have these emotions and, and learning how to really, that they're, it's good that we have them. So I know that you have worked really hard to create a culture for your customers, as you've said, that was deeply respectful and even helpful to them. And I, I understand that you had this very difficult experience with a, with a, I was going to say a patient, with an employee who was very altered. Since that time, undoubtedly you've had new employees, you know, there's turnover and so on. What do you do in an ongoing way to foster a culture among your staff that does not stigmatize it when people need to ask for help or when they're suffering from depression? It's interesting. I think there's several things. First of all, I'd really encourage any employer have an employee assistance plan. It's really important. It's funny. Years ago, actually, when we had the staff member all those years ago, we researched and, and brought an EAP plan in so that our staff would have some counseling. We have a great health insurance plan, but again, all the rules and regulations about what's covered and what's not. And so we really wanted a, a low barrier, a way that anyone could anonymously get help. And so we had the EAP plan. And then we found nobody was using it. And, and it's confidential, but we can get statistics on whether people are using it. And, and so we felt maybe there isn't value in it. And so we ended the program. It was a very expensive plan. And, and so we stopped using it. And and then we had a staff member. We Over a period of time, we've had two staff members, young people, um, die unexpectedly. And when uh, one of them was killed in a car accident, I had staff calling me saying, now, what's the number for the EAP? Right. And we didn't have it anymore. And so I really started doing research again. And, and again, it's for a small business. We are still a small business. It, it's really, it can be cost prohibitive, and that's where... For us, having an amazing insurance agent who said, let's get creative and figure out how we can get you a great EAP plan. And, and so it, it's, you know, there are ways of doing things creatively. And, and so every person who joins our company gets $10,000 worth of life insurance. <laughs> life insurance. It just so happens there's this life insurance plan that attached with it has this incredibly comprehensive EAP program. Huh. So they're getting a twofer. They're getting a twofer. And so I tell people, the weird thing is, we're buying new life insurance. The The back end of it and why we do this is there's a great program, and it's not just counseling. It's all sorts of guidance. It's if you, you, know, you need a car repair place and you need a recommendation, you can call the number. And it's, it's interesting to me, too, because I find the life insurance industry personally very challenging. I had always been a preferred client because I'm older, but I'm healthy, and I have no health issues. And on my recent application, I wrote down that I was in counseling. And my agent came back and said, the great news is you've been approved for life insurance, but I know that you're going to be upset by this. They downgraded you. And I said, is it because did I age to the next bracket? And was informed, no, you're in counseling. 
So, and so they've decided that be, that you have depression and therefore are a suicide risk. I mean, in terms of life insurance, why is that? Why does that matter? Well, and I said, you know, let me get them the name of my counselor. I I'm not in any way. I've not threatened others. I've not, you know, literally to me, the healthiest thing I did was get, get counseling. counseling. <laughs> right. So it's so it's interesting. So I think that that's where, as a culture, we have to encourage people to get healthy, but then we can't have in these really odd places that now you're going to be punished for getting healthy. And again, when you're saying, you know, the different ways that we actually really encourage staff, the EAP is one way. But it used to be that we would have staff also if they would come to, whether it be me or my partner or our office manager, to express concern about a coworker. That it used to be perceived as you're telling on someone. And so we really had to let people know we don't care who you talk to, whether it's that you personally are struggling or you're concerned about a coworker. There are enough people within our company to tell someone. We will not disclose who shared the information. But we and we could cite examples of staff who had actually left us with extreme issues because no one had shared with us that they were concerned. The earlier you share with us your concern, the faster we can get someone help. Or at least remind everybody company wide there's an EAP plan. Use it. You're talking about, I think, building trust in a community in your staff that the response would not be punitive, that the response would be help. Mm. And that is a trust, mm. I think, mm. that mm. Uh, it has to be earned over time. And, and it doesn't exist probably in the majority of workplaces. You know, I think there's fear. There yeah. is fear. And I think that, again, that's where letting people know there is no shame. And also, you know, it's a little tricky because not every time that we step in to get someone help, is it successful? Right. And so having someone not feel that we've all failed... These things can be very complicated. They can treat. be. They're very complicated. But yeah. I think again, it is. It's creating trust, but also letting, letting the entire team know that again, it has to do with it's not mental illness. It's mental health. You know, earlier you were giving the example of several customers coming in, and behaving perhaps in disruptive ways of all, all different kinds. And I know from reading about your company that you actually hired. I think a social worker or someone to come in and do a, a company-wide training mm-hmm. on de-escalation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mm-hmm. learned from her about ways to help de-escalate a situation like that? You know, the thing that, first of all, was that was so important, and it was Claire Harrison at DHHS who was, was just phenomenal. And the thing that was really interesting with Claire is she, the first thing she did when she arrived for the first training is she apologized to our staff. And she said, I visited all of the coffee houses because I wanted to observe what the issues are that you're addressing here. And we as case managers, social workers, the whole range of of experts, we bring our clients in here because it's a comfortable environment. So Monday to Friday, we come in with our clients because here we're trying to mainstream them or have it be a non-threatening environment. And so we're there to control the situation. And then the weekends come. And these clients feel very comfortable coming into your coffee house. But there's an episode. And we're expecting that you're going to know how to handle it. She said, we owe you an apology because we've not trained you or given you the tools to how do you handle this. And so it was just an amazing way to have everybody feel that what goes on was acknowledged. And that they could use, again, as I was saying earlier, they could use language like, 
they're crazy or that's frightening to me. And it was okay to say those that kind of language. They didn't have to be professionals. They could ex- describe what is happening on a daily basis. So you mentioned that it's okay for your employees to use the word frightened, which makes complete sense mm-hmm. to me. But you also say it's also okay for them to say that this person is crazy. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. is it important for someone to be able to use that word? Because it feels disparaging. Because in trying to be politically correct, it holds people back from sharing what they see, what's happening, how it literally they if they feel that they have to be so careful in how they present the information, that's a barrier. And also what Claire trained us was you can't have two separate sets of rules because you're schizophrenic. That dehumanizes someone. So I'm gonna have a different set of rules for you and how you can behave. That's not appropriate. We're a public environment. If they're gonna come into our environment, there's a certain range of behavior we expect from everybody. It's the same rules, but it's how we convey the information that might differ. Same thing with staff. They would, we'd have uh, customers who come in with various diagnoses, and they would have a, a lot of espresso. And I found out the staff were starting to serve them decaf. And I had to explain to them how that was inappropriate. You've taken away someone's ability to choose. You can give them the choice. Again, give them the feedback. You've already had four or five shots of espresso. Our decaf espresso is really good here. Can I recommend that? I said, that's, that's honoring a human being in front of you. But if you've taken away their right to choose, I struggle with that. What a fascinating decision. I mean, it makes me think it's paternalism. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think about bartenders who will actually stop serving mm-hmm. someone who has become visibly drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the standard is different for espresso, even though it is also a psychoactive substance, caffeine. It is different. And so, but again, it's a matter of how do we look at the person in front of us. It's interesting when we, as we have our regulars, and again, it might just be that the behavior is a little off, but absolutely acceptable. But you never know they're standing next to someone else who's a new customer, or has never been in the coffee house at the same time, and they're standing in line. And a new customer might, you can just, you can see it visually. You can tell they're getting uncomfortable by who's next to them. And having staff behind the counter acknowledge the regular customer whose behavior might be different. And just calling out their name, hey, Joe, nice to see you again. The new customer is at ease now because they know this is not a risk. This is not a threat next to them. The staff know this person. I know that you described yourself on your business card. It says that you are a community builder. Mm What do you mean by that? It's uh, First of all, I want to thank Paul in the roastery because it was at his wedding when he gave us all titles um, as to what meaning we had in his life, and I was given community builder. And, and for me, I feel as if there's a responsibility, an honored responsibility that comes with it, and it's a matter of taking care of the greater community. It's taking care of my own family. It's taking care of the customers and the people who work with us. It's the global community. And what I've realized is I have a way of seeing the world. And uh, I tell people I I look at the sky sometimes and I can see different things that look like they're not related. And I am able to actually see how can we work together and make great things happen. And so that title, which I was given many, many years ago as I've gotten older, and again, probably because I've been addressing my own depression issues and I just feel like I'm healthier now than I've ever been. 
that I feel like I can now fully step into the community builder role? It's really a powerful example for me of how a coffee shop can end up being a safe space Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. community, a safe space for people to come to work, Mm -hmm. to hang out, and feel like they'll get treated with respect. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Mary Ellen, for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. I always like to end the show by asking for specific resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a couple that we've mentioned. So one is the movie Inside Out, which is great. Do you know NAMI is great? NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Is They're an- great. And also, um, I'll tell you, the HELP hotline. The HELP hotline. So that's 774-HELP. Yeah. Yes, which is a 24-7 hotline that people can call if they're in distress or they know someone who is. Mary Ellen, thank you again so thank much you. for being my guest. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Or you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including the earlier shows in this series on depression at work. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And please leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graven for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.